Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The notorious Betty Page is over. Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden, weren't they? When they sinned, they put on clothes. 
take a picture of me? It's silly. People take pictures of me all the time, but I don't know how to take one of myself. She was the pinup queen of the universe. I need you to lift your knee up. I'm seeing you a little bit too much. Can you bend over? Show us your kisser. Oh, you're so happy. I don't know how much I love you. Her pictures captured the fantasies of a nation. It takes all types to make a world. What kind of types? I'd like this young lady to look very strict. Little John has some special outfits he'd like you to put on. I'll say they're special. Betty, do you understand what kind of man buys these pictures? Does it just make you sick to see guys like me grovel like this? It's fine. Don't you just want to crush us? Humiliate us? Punish us? But for Betty Page, life was more than just a pose. Tell it. What do you think of all this tying up business? Oh, I enjoy acting very much. Has Mama said anything to you about my mother? Not a word. What do you think Jesus would say about what you're doing now? I hope that if he's unhappy with what I'm doing, he'll let me know somehow. Picture House and HBO Films present The Woman Behind the Pinups. It's quite a treat to meet the notorious Betty Page. Send the next one in. And the life behind. <laughs> Betty. The Notorious Betty Page. Welcome to The Notorious Betty Page. It's nice to yes. have you here. The next film in and the last of this particular Mary Heron series. We're looking at her first three films, and this is the last one. 2000, it's, you know, 2005, 2006. Five-ish. 2006 yeah. adjacent. Depending, depending <laughs> on, on who you listen to based on award releases, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Her third film, The Notorious Betty Page. All about The Notorious Betty Page. Fancy that. Okay, two things. One, had you seen the movie before? Nope. Nope. Two, what did you know about Betty Page? The real Betty Page. Uh, I didn't know anything about her life. All I knew is that she was uh, a, a famous pinup girl from ages ago. But I came, as I watched the film, came to realize a lot of my uh, thoughts of who she was were incorrect because I thought she was one of the women that, like, during the war, they were painting on the bombers and stuff like that. So I was a little off on my impressions. I, I think I had crossed, Cause she, like... Because she wasn't. No, but she was a pinup girl, but that came a later. little later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I I had high hopes for for this movie, really high hopes, uh, and that was before I even recognized that it was Gretchen Maul in the title role. Mm. Uh, and as you know, Andy, I'm a Gretchen Maul fan. Are you? Do you, do you I, know that? I oh, didn't yeah. know that, and I was like, I know I've seen her before, but and I because I definitely recognize her name, but she's one of those people <laughs> where I was like, where? do I know you from? Because I just don't know. Really? Yeah. I mean, I know she's been in bit parts like Donnie Brasco, things like that, but I, I'm not sure of any big role. The 13th floor. Which I know I saw, but I remember nothing about that. It film. was so, it was so good. I think it might be a guilty pleasure of mine, but I love it. I love it. I love that movie. I love what it well, does to my 7. brain. it's 7.1 at IMDb, so it can't be a guilty oh, pleasure. Oh, it's not a guilty Too pleasure. many people love it. Yeah. noted too many people have been hornswoggled by that movie i adore it and i fell in love with gretchen mall in that movie and i cannot believe that she i mean it took me i don't know what 
I don't know what I was thinking. I turned on this movie, and during the credits, I must have turned my head to take a sip of beverage and missed the fact that it was starring Gretchen Maul. I must have totally missed it because <laughs> In it the was title a half role, hour, yeah. <laughs> yeah, half hour into the movie, and I'm like, gosh, she's really great, that that uh, whoever's playing Betty Payne. Who's playing Betty? Gretchen what now? I mean, blown away by... Uh, the fact that Gretchen Moll was in here. And I think, I, I, for me, there's the movie and there's uh, Gretchen Moll in the title character. And then there's everything else. So, um, and and I'm not even, uh, like, completely 100% exuberant about the character that she's playing. But I think she, okay, uh, I'll just lay it all out there. Gretchen Moll's performance in this movie is the reason to see this movie if you want to take the time to see this movie. There you go. <laughs> that sounds like what a lot of critics said about this film. They said that her performance was fantastic, that this, uh, you know, from reading about uh, this film and everything and Gretchen Maul's performance in it, I had forgotten, and maybe it's just because I didn't really remember her that much, but she was kind of an, a Hollywood it girl in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, she had been in a few roles where people thought, oh, she's really going to break into things and she's going to be that next person that you're going to see everywhere. And but then it never really happened. I mean, she certainly is still performing and she's in a lot of things. She just never quite became like the next thing, you know, but I mean, this certainly got a lot of buzz for her. But I think I don't know. It's just I think there are a lot of things about this film that, you know, as you're alluding to, it makes it not necessarily, you know, a film worth watching, except to look at what Gretchen Maul is doing in it. So I, I think we should start there because it's really, I think that's an important way to talk about this film. We're doing the Mary Heron series, and I went into this looking for the Mary Heron stamp, right? And I think I think I got it. Um, you know, I, I, what attracted her to, uh, I shot Andy Warhol and to American Psycho, these properties about, um, you know, things that aren't safe to talk about, right? Things that, that are, um, they're not appropriate where it's not appropriate to do the kinds of things that, you know, uh, Patrick Braitman does in American Psycho. It's not appropriate to be such a radical feminist that you write a manifesto from the Society for Cutting Up Men. Like those are things that are are in in many ways hard to approach cinematically. And she is interested in pushing on those buttons. And I think dealing with pornography in this time period is another one of those buttons that she, I, I have to imagine, sort of delights in pushing and, and approaching it in the way she did. And I think she has a delicate touch to it. Um, I, I don't get the feeling that what she is is doing here is to be so provocative as to state an opinion, but to to present a uh, to present a case. The challenge I have with it is that she's so. She's so soft with it. It's almost soft hearted. Like the movie, in in fact, comes away as like uh, being a meal that I enjoyed and don't remember eating. Um, it, it's just kind of vapor for me. And I just watched it less than 36 hours ago. And it's already you, you mentioned the end that you missed five minutes at the end because your DVD was busted up. Uh, I, I don't think I could tell you what you missed. <laughs> well, luckily, uh, you know, some people on YouTube 
made it available for me. So I was at least able to, to watch it. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I, I, I kind of was able to piece it together from what I saw before and after the gap that I had. But what's what I, I think the thing this Heron said this about the film, and I think this will speak to some of my issues with the film. She said, uh, because she was interested in she was interested in doing a story about Betty Page. Her, I think it was her stepmother, uh, Mary Heron's stepmother, had been an actress, and she was actually uh, had acted with Stanley Kubrick. She was, I think, discovered by Stanley Kubrick, acted in his first film, Fear and Desire, and that idea of kind of breaking into the industry uh, inspired her from from stories of her stepmother inspired her to do this story. I think just because of that angle. But what she said about Betty Page specifically, she said, clearly, Betty is a very inspiring figure to young women because she had a strong independent streak. She did what she wanted to do, and she wasn't just doing it for men. But I think it's a huge mistake to think of her as a conscious feminist heroine. As far as I can see, she didn't have an agenda. She just followed her own path unconsciously. I don't think she thought of herself as a rebel in any way. She was kind of in her own world of dress up. And I think when I yeah, see the does, film, does the movie succeed in delivering on that? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the problem is that's what the film is delivering. Yeah. And, you know, she said she saw Paige as an unwitting feminist figure who represented a movement for women's sexual liberation. But we're getting just so much of this passive character of Betty Page working through that particular story. And we're not really getting that that movement for women's sexual liberation as kind of the the other side of the story it's and so i it becomes such a passive biopic and it's i mean it's interesting i enjoyed learning about betty page and her life but it also just felt like eh, okay well now i know a little something about betty page but you know where where is this connecting to anything in the bigger picture and that's where i think mary heron failed in her desire to put this together is there wasn't that other side to to actually make this this passive character of Betty Page working through this world contrasting with with everything. I mean, we see the contrast with like the the Senate hearings and stuff like that, but that just felt like expected Senate investigations of porn in the 50s. Like it yeah. didn't it 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 didn't take me anywhere. That that's the problem. And I, so speaking first to Betty Page, I I think you're absolutely right. What makes the the thing a drama is when you have a character who is even an unwitting advocate for feminist, whatever the words you used, um, feminist sexual liberation, whatever, if, if she is intentional about her behavior, if she believes she is being somehow personally wronged in a way that can be extrapolated to a cultural wrong, and that she, through her actions, is able to turn the tide, right? But we don't get any of that. We get this. Uh, she's she's almost accidentally in the movie. Betty Page as a protagonist is a bore, right? Gretchen Maul is fantastic in playing the character she was given, but the character is a snooze. Case in point, the big trial at the end. David Strathairn sitting up with his gavel. And we get this. Uh, you know, this this is them taking to to uh, culture court, right, by way of litigating at this panel, um, you know, Irving Claw and uh, uh, Lily uh, Taylor's Paula Claw, his sister, sort of litigating their activities as selling pornography through the mail. And Betty Page is literally sitting on a bench in the hall 
for 12 hours and never takes the stand. She is never called as a witness. That, to me, is the central sin of the third act of this movie, that we, it is all told by way of her sitting in court waiting, or sitting outside court waiting, and we never get the classic redemptive moment where she's on the stand. I don't care if that's the way it happened for real. I don't care by that point. It makes it not an interesting movie to watch. Well, and that's, uh, and I mean, I think that they could have done it with her being out there and, and never getting a chance to come in and speak. But they would have had to come around it in a different way where they actually made it feel like there was a whole other thing happening and Betty Page had become unwittingly, as Mary Heron says, this kind of figure representing it that then they just discarded and didn't even consider to use. Like, that story wasn't there. But that also would have been more interesting than the way they did it. And I I don't feel like when... uh, when Mary Heron was putting this story together with uh, Guinevere Turner, who she wrote American Psycho with, I I just don't feel like they found the right approach to this particular biopic. That is absolutely it for me. And that is where I struggle. I think centering the flashback narrative on her sitting court and kind of reliving her life through that experience. I guess there is a case to be made that, um, you know, anchoring her in court and flashing back to the rest of her life on how she got to that point and then deflating the whole story there at the end is is the sign of uh, lack of progress. And maybe that is the the punch we're supposed to take away from her experience there that, look, I did all this and to wit, nothing. And um, I I just don't feel like that uh, that made a good movie. I think you're I think you're right. Finding a different way around or frankly, do we need the flashback architecture for this story? Yeah, the flashback architecture was so structured, so frustrating. I want to go back to your point real quick and then come back to this flashback, because I feel like there's a point at the end when this is after she had found found herself lost in this life that she was leading she left it went back to church and then was basically on street corners uh you know speaking the word of the lord and a guy comes up to her a couple guys and and they're talking to her like aren't you the notorious betty page and she's like yeah it's not me anymore blah 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 and that whole thing then there's that moment where she says something about her photos and or they're talking about you know the the being naked and all that stuff and and he's just like well no offense to you but the pictures they're doing nowadays are a lot more graphic than than they ever were with you and i feel like that i think was the story that mary heron was trying to say here that this was this was this character in this world and didn't have any clue what was really, I mean, she was a very naive girl and I really enjoyed the way that that kind of came across the route where she just never saw it as anything more than just taking silly pictures and stuff. But like, that's the story that we're not getting here, right? She never clues in to the fact that this is leading down a, a road of, you know, stronger and stronger types of pornography and it never like she's just never clued in. And even later, she when she learns that she just it it never goes anywhere. And that's just, you know, just following up on your point. Like that's another part of the story that just it's it just dropped in there. But it's not done in a way where it's like, oh, 
this there was actually a change because of all this, you know? But you know what? You so I 100% agree with you. I think that is one of the other one of the stories that I think could have been kind of leveled up in this movie um, and not been so thin. The other one that I think is a massive missed opportunity is the conflict the and, and we should say the word in bold italics, the conflict that exists in Betty Page that we see at the end when she's standing on the street corner preaching the word of the Lord is the central conflict that exists between uh, that sort of uh, the the moral line she's been walking on the entire time to this. Like, if, if we're going to do a flashback, let's do a flashback from her, you know, on her life having been saved and see how that exists in conflict with the rest of her early history. I would be interested to see how that played out. And maybe there's not much of a story there, but it's a story that it's one of the stories that I wanted instead of the one I got. Yeah, it, 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 I, I feel like there were elements that Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner added in here that as I watched the film, I'm like, well, what are we you know, what are we gleaning from this over in the in the context of the story? Like when when she's, again, such a naive young girl. And I find that sense of innocence really refreshing. And I really enjoyed that with Betty. She has that moment where early on she first is in New York and she's walking around and that guy says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my, my friends are going to go to this dance and I don't have anyone to go with any interest in going with me. And she's like, well, I suppose I do like dancing. And they get her in the car and he seems all nice. And then more guys get in the car. And then it turns out they're going to take her out to the country and rape her. And um, but then I'm like, but but where did that go? Like, I I wasn't sure. Well, it went nowhere, Andy. What they were trying (laughs) to say. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's that's the problem is is she it's like a moment of her. Um, getting forced into a sexual situation. We also have that moment with her dad earlier, alluding to the fact that he is molesting her. Um, but then she still is naive. And when it comes into this world of taking these pictures and stuff, it's like, it's it's not even explored as a moment of like female empowerment. It's just her like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Let's take some pictures. And it just constantly was frustrating to me. Like, well, you know, why are those things in here if it's not leading to... I'm going to take back my femininity type of story, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I struggled with all of that. And uh, yeah, and leading into the flashbacks, like I wasn't sure where the benefit was of having some of these moments as flashbacks in this structure, which has become such a standard biopic element of, of, of starting, at, you know, at a big point later in the story when the shop's getting busted and the trial and all of that leading us to her life and then we're kind of walking through it which just seems like like there's no good reason to do that other than to allow us to have like a titillating moment of conflict at the start of the story that can allow kind of for this structure to happen and it's just i don't know all of these things like i i just don't feel like this was a case of a director and her co-writer finding the heart of the right story i think that's true i, I think to your point about the the child abuse and the rape sequence they're they're not presented in any sort of fashion that uh makes you makes it feel unified as pieces of her character moving forward uh they they really are presented as 
moments. And that's what the whole movie is. It is a string of, of disconnected, disjointed moments that don't paint a picture of character. And I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm missing. I, I don't, I don't even know that, uh, I mean, that, that bit with her father is so fast. Uh, it's such a small scene, a small disconnected scene. We have no other sort of instruments, uh, available to us as audience members to understand her relationship with the rest of her family. Uh, that, that is, it almost could be another character, right? It could be, so you might not even think it's Betty moving. It moves so uh, quickly through it. Well, and it leads to this place where all I'm left to think about is, is Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, are they putting those scenes in here because they're saying things that happen in a, in a life like this can lead to you getting into porn? Like, I just I don't understand why they're there uh, if they're not going to just be an element. And and so that either either that, you know, these are the things that lead a person into the life of pornography, which is such an odd kind of path for them to be taking the story. Or it's just these are key points in in Betty's life and we're going to put them in the film because. Well, right. And, and you know, the, the whole perspective and we, the anchor characters that we have to present the other side of that argument are the, the photographers, some of the photographers, where uh, we have the nice young man and who's part of the photo club, and he takes her out into the woods. This is the first time she gets fully nude, and he says, you know, I can't shoot that. I'll be arrested. I, I need you to turn around. Um, and... Then we have, of course, Sarah Paulson's Bunny Yeager, who I think is fantastic. I mean, I really I love Sarah Paulson. Um, and, um, you know, the way this this is, I, I think this is supposed to be the presentation of art versus pornography. Right. We have a strong woman photographer who is um, taking pictures of Betty Page, uh, topless, nude, whatever, but doing it. Uh, but obviously, she can't be titillated by it because she's a woman, right? Like that—that's kind of the air quotes perspective. I—I I feel like I'm getting from this movie, and so she must be representative of art in human form. And the other—the other side is that this, like the the f- photographer's gaggle in that in the living room uh, and going out into the woods. Uh, you know, we know we're taking those pictures because they are titillating, and we have to, you know. Beware of just going so far and not too far, and those, and and eventually we get to she's wearing a leather corset and ball gag and standing on somebody's back in high heels. Yeah, yeah. and and so I think that is such a it is it's it's such a transparent attempt at hitting both sides of that argument that it it loses the depth of the performances that I think are otherwise pretty good. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. You know, it just it I mean, there are good performances in the film. It's not just Gretchen Maul. I mean, there are other people doing good performances in the film, but I just yeah, it's it's like I'm not sure where they're going with this. And I, I, I think that your point about the different ways that these different photographers are viewing this as art as you know that an appreciation of the of the female form and then it gets into you know catering to specific tastes things like that because you know it's a business and they need to make money and and kind of going down this this road but yeah i just i i don't know i just don't feel like it's leading us on a path where i feel like they're saying anything or maybe they're saying too many things and because of that it's impossible to kind of pin anything down. Well, or they're saying just the right thing in an incredibly non-committal way. 
Yeah. I, I really, this movie feels uh, deflated and it sucks because I think, again, Gretchen Mull, this is a brave part to take on, right? It is always a brave part to do this kind of, of just unprotected, frivol- not, I was about to say frivolous, but this sort of unprotected uh, flamboyance of nudity in in. In film, right? To live on. An innocence of nudity. In the sense of nudity, of her being nude in film, uh, it is a bold and a brave, courageous effort uh, on her part as a performer. And I just so wish it had ended up being a better movie. Yeah. And I mean, going back to your point about the way that kind of the, the photographers were and everything, it's obvious that it was specifically focused. Their point was specifically focused on the pornography and that angle and kind of like the way that the government was shifting into attack mode because of it in the culture wars as as you mentioned earlier because that's how they frame it right that's exactly the piece they use at the start of the film to say this is what our story is going to be about it's about the the horrors of the rise of pornography in the 50s but in reality, how it's not necessarily as bad as all that. That's basically what they're trying to frame it with. So that has to be the message that they're trying to get across. And I just I think that it wasn't a strong message. They could have found a better way to do it. It just it just largely doesn't work. Yeah. You don't put a guy like Chris Bauer in that role if you don't want him to be the cultural bad guy, right? If you don't want that part to be like they're really hanging a, a sign on him doing that role and, and the way he did it. Like he's the lovable schlub and nobody can ever look at anything. If you if you only knew the guy, you'd know that he wasn't really up to no good. Uh, and, and in fact, the way he plays it, he's a lovable schlub and he doesn't even know he's up to no good, right? He just wants his business to keep going. He wants his little mail order business to keep going. And and um, and he gets in trouble, but he also rides that line between painting him as this kind of, you know, he's a lovable schlub, but also he's a schlub and kind of sweaty. And like he's not <laughs> he's a guy when you put him in court with all the nice suits, he's going to stand out. And that just feels like such a heavy handed way to portray this character. It just, it, it just felt like it it was it was trying to hide complexity behind, you know. Yeah, but behind something so obvious. The, I did think it was interesting the way they portray uh, this is the it, it's sort of the Al Capone story, right? Where they get Al Capone on tax evasion and they get pornographers for you know mail fraud or mail whatever the ultimate you know sending porn through the mail yeah right, uh, right. system. I think that was interesting. I think that was that there that I mean I I didn't realize that that was the way that they're kind of initially kind of the attack on porn was to to stop them by not allowing or by saying you're mailing these things through the U.S. postal system and that's not allowed and now you're in trouble from it. It's like, oh, interesting. I didn't realize that that was a thing, but I appreciate that little bit of history that I've learned from this. So there were <laughs> elements. You, do you find yourself saying that to the movie when I do, it's over? I do, yeah. I appreciate you for that little bit of history. Movie. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, and you know, I don't know, I, I guess as this is the last of our Mary Heron series, I will say I, I was a little disappointed that she went back to the biopic. Well, I mean, I thought she did fine with, um, I shot Andy Warhol, but I thought she did so much better with American psycho. And I wanted to see her do something that was edgy again. And even in the sense of biopic, 
like every step of the way, this felt like safe, 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 safe. Like all the decisions they were making were ones of safety. And I don't know if she was just trying to, because Betty Page was still alive. Um, they couldn't get her to sign off on the film because I guess she had actually already committed to a different project. I think there was a, a, a documentary that was being made that she was um, a part of, I think. And so she couldn't actually commit to it. She, you know, Mary Heron did get interviews with friends and, and uh, family and her first husband and people like that. But maybe she was just trying to play it safe because she didn't want to offend Betty. And it just, it just feels sure like what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it felt very soft. I mean, you use that word right at the beginning. And I think that's really just how it feels. It, it also in, in its, sort of playing it safe, it, it also manages to do the double sins of, and, and I didn't even think about this until I just read your note that drove me batty. So we already have the flashback, which yeah. is not useful in this film. I think we agree. And the second is the voiceover uh, as yeah. she's reading the letters to her sister Goldie, which I thought, again, you know, I get that they're trying to make this family connection that but the family connection was already too weak and I hate the voiceover so much. Yeah. It just, I mean, it was badly written. It wasn't interesting and it just felt like we need to have some exposition in here to get us from this point to that point. Let's have her write a letter to her sister. And there were just, I don't know. I often give biopics a lot of, um, uh, benefit of the doubt as I watch them because I know it's about a story about a person's life and some of the tropes that they fall into to kind of get the story told. I'm like, well, you know, they're trying to tell a person's life. It's it's going to need elements like that to kind of get me through it. As long as I'm really interested in the person and their life, I generally that stuff kind of rolls off my rolls off my back. But here I just like all of these things just kept compiling on top of each other to a point where I'm like, oh, my God, now we're going to have like some some poorly written narration yeah. as a letter to her sister to get us there. It's like, gosh, come on. This is frustrating. Uh, so some interesting production choices. She she shoots most of the film in black and white. And uh, when she gets to Miami, it it's in color. How'd the color change work for you? It gets to Miami, but also did it was it consistent? Because I feel like the first time that we flashed a color was in a photo shoot, right? Like I it as soon as we started with the first round of magazines, I think after one of her first big photo sessions, all of a sudden everything was in color. And I'm like, oh, okay, so we're gonna have a black and white film, and then it's gonna shift to color when it's going into um a lot of these like magazines and stuff, and it's like this is the the photo world of Betty or something like that. But then it really seemed to shift to Miami and I'm like, Oh, why? okay. So all of a sudden now it's very specifically Miami when we're in color, like all the stuff with Sarah Paulson, she meets that guy down there, all that stuff. Now everything's in color. Um, but then even at the end, like she is, um, she, she's with her boy, long-term boyfriend, I guess, or husband. I'm not exactly sure who he was. Um, up in New York, leaves him, goes back to Florida. She's hanging out with that boy on the beach that she had met, leaves him, finds church, and is saved, all in color. Then we see her changing clothes again, back in black and white. Then we're back in color as she's on the street corners 
uh, preaching the word of the Lord. And so I'm like, is this, are we in Miami still? Like, You're I, right. I, That's really interesting. I was, I had missed the part where they go to the film shoot. It's that it's the first film shoot where the yeah, yeah. three of they're all playing, playing croquet and they're yes. popping around. That's not in Miami and it's all in color. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that's at 45 minutes. And I had totally missed that because I it seemed like and I'm sure I was I was implanted by reading some of or when she talks about choosing to film the stuff in Miami in color. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then why did they choose to film the the earliest film shoot of her in color as well? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. And then and then why was there like if she's in Florida through the whole end, why do we dip to black and white at one point when she's changing her clothes only to come back to color when she's, you know, on the street corner and stuff like I just found a little consistency with that. And I wasn't sure. I mean, and it's I guess it's harder when I read that note about Miami because Mary Heron uh, said she knew all the Miami scenes she wanted to be in color to provide a contrast between Betty's professional life and the escape she ultimately made from it. But then she's also, there's a lot of stuff in Miami that is part of her professional like life, everything she's doing with Bunny. And that's all color. That's all color. And, and so if that, so that's like, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I struggle with Heron's decision because I don't feel like Miami defined the difference between professional life and her escape. I feel like, you know, if she was going to do that, she should have found a different way around it. Like all the, all the stuff when she was a kid should have also been in color then. Right. Like yeah. I, I, when she I was know. still innocent and before, but then when she switches back to finding God is all in color, anything in church is in color in uh, at the end. Right. When she yeah. goes back to church and she sees the choir, it's all in this beautiful, luscious color. Yeah. And uh, and so that seems to be yet another possible rule set that she's following that doesn't doesn't seem consistent. And that, yeah, and then, like I said, she's saved in color. The next scene, she's changing her clothes. It's back in black and white. And then she's outside in color. It's like, well, why the one bit in, like, is that her, is that Mary Heron saying this is her taking off the the shell of her old life? And like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. It was you're, a frustrating. Right. That is so yeah. strange. It was a, it was a, yeah, strange. She's putting on her clothes of being found. Like it's her prudence outfit, right? Yeah, like, exactly. So uh, why isn't it in color? <laughs> are we supposed to believe that this end sequence is her actually figuring out that what she did has questions of prurience? Well, that was my question earlier. It's like, yeah, that guy has that thing where he says, oh, you should see what they're doing nowadays. The stuff you did was tame. Like, okay, okay, was that, was this a point we're making yeah. here? Because if anyone's going to get that like, point. Did we could just go into Boogie Nights territory? <laughs> like, now we're in video. Yeah, exactly. It's not Betty Page. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> She'll never figure it out. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's a, I don't know. The whole thing was just very frustrating, frustratingly put together. And I just don't feel, as a director, that Mary Heron found the way into the story. I would not have been able to tell you that this was a, a Mary Heron film without uh, without some guidance. Uh, it, it just felt, it, it felt um, like it just acquiesced uh, yeah. too easily in, yeah. in many choices. Many, in terms of the director's, you know, 
stamp in terms of her ability to make hard choices around the kinds of things she wants to show on screen. I, I don't feel like I, I either feel like she abdicated the easy to the easiest choice every time or didn't make choices at all. It feels uh, barring the nudity. And I mean, again, I appreciate that they they painted it in such an innocent light, the way that uh, that Gretchen Maul kind of plays all of that. I found that mm-hmm. to be uh, refreshing and innocent, and I enjoyed that. But everything else about it felt like I was watching like a Hallmark biopic. Yes. Yeah. Did it? I, I don't remember. I mean, this was, I, I hadn't seen the film, and I don't remember how it was released originally. It's an HBO films, right? It is, but they, I mean, they were releasing it- a lot of things theatrically theatrically yeah. too okay yeah. yeah i just didn't know if this was one of their specials no no it was yeah it was an indie film i think okay. I, I don't know if they put some money into it but um interesting yeah it was a it was a uh, relatively small indie budget one of your turner was supposed to take on the role of right uh of betty page and i i feel like uh before we started talking about mary heron uh, I didn't know much of Guinevere Turner. Boy, she I think she does look the part. Um, I, I think she already has kind of the natural dark hair, the natural sort of look of Betty Page. I think she could have pulled it off, but uh looks like they couldn't get the money. I don't think she was a name. I mean, she had been uh, one of the prostitutes in American Psycho. And she had been kind of an indie actress since the early 90s, early mid 90s. But always in kind of small parts, like she never was somebody who um, really kind of grew into uh, the it girl, you know. And so I think because of that, it's like they were pushing the story to be the next uh, or Guinevere Turner's chance at the lead role and stuff. But, yeah, it's just like you're not going to get it without um, with, or the funding that you need to, to make a movie like this without somebody who's at least a little bit more of a name. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, she definitely looks the part. I think she could have been fine because I, I do think that in the scenes she was in in American Psycho, I thought she was fine. Mm-hmm. But I I mean, as you said, Gretchen Maul just really owned this role. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anybody else uh, stand out? Because there are a lot of performers in here that are, I think are are worth just running down the names. Well, certainly we uh, have some faces we've seen in previous films. Jared Harris and Lily Taylor from the first uh, film in the series and Kara Seymour. Uh, she had been the other prostitute in uh, American Psycho. Love Jared Harris in, in you know, kind of a yeah. weird role, but I, I just love seeing him. That guy is, is uh, has got some range. Yeah, he does. He's so much fun to see here. And he definitely, he definitely feels like, you know, he's, it almost felt like he's channeling a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the world of Andy Warhol again with his kind of crazy character here. Absolutely. John Cullum was fun to see John Cullum in Nashville uh, briefly. Yep. It was nice seeing him. Um, I loved seeing Austin Pendleton as her theater teacher. And I thought that was just is an acting teacher. And I just thought that was very funny. Like the the interpretation that she took for that that read and how she was like taking her pantyhose off and all this stuff. And he's just like, OK, good, good. Yep. yep. You know, you can you see don't have very to much take your clothes off, dear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very 50s mentality. I thought that was pretty funny. What's, what stinks about that is that was a scene I wanted to see play out. Like, I would really be interested in seeing what Betty Page could do with that. Like, what was she really? How was she? She wasn't going to strip like she was just home at the end of the day, just sitting for two minutes. Right. right. And uh, he was, you know, just as a as a vessel of, you know, Rudeness. He uh, Austin Pendleton was was fantastic. 
but I wish I'd seen kind of what where that would play out. There's another version of that scene in my head that works in the movie better, uh, where we get to see what Betty Page is capable of. Exactly. David Strathairn as Estes Kefauver, Senator Estes Kefauver. I mean, we already know Strathairn works great in black and white. Uh, let me just go yeah. see. Good night, uh, you good, know, good night and look good luck. And uh, you're you know what we're talking about, but. I mean, he's great here. It's just, it felt, again, like such a, I mean, they pulled all of their actual dialogue for the scene from the Senate hearing itself. Mm-hmm. And so there's not much original to it. It's just, we're watching a Senate hearing. It it, it played out that way, too. Uh, and Norman Reedus. I was very excited to see Norman Reedus in this movie. I wish he was a nicer guy, uh, but not surprised that he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, brief first husband of Betty Page. and. Uh, I just, he went from, in my eye, he went from here straight into Walking Dead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it was great seeing him again. He's a part of kind of like a a poorly scripted part of the film where they have a meet cute. And then it's like, you know, montage. It's like marriage slash abuse slash divorce montage. And that's pretty much what we're left with as far as his relationship and part in the film. Uh, Anybody else uh, jump out at you? It's a long Long, lovely cast, but those were the ones that hit me. Again, just, yeah, yeah. a lot of good names. Uh, you know, Ann Dowd was the mom, and she, I thought, was fine as kind of the religious mom. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I thought they were all, uh, the cast, I think they worked. I think, again, they all they all do their job in the context of the film. W. Mott Hupful III, behind the camera, I think working with Trisha Cook, editing, uh, it, they, they found an interesting look for the film. Throughout, whatever we think of their decisions to move between black and white and color, I think integrating this film, this period with, you know, stock footage of the period, stock colors of the period, I think works beautifully. It does. I, I, I liked the 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 film stock they used for the color was a grainier film stock, mm-hmm. so it felt of the period. My only complaint is when they had all that beautiful stock footage throughout. Um, of kind of the cities and stuff to really establish the era. I loved all of that. I couldn't help but wish that they, and I know it would have been hard for the full film, but using a more grainy black and white uh, film stock today to kind of at least match with the black and white more. I know they probably didn't want the whole thing to be quite so grainy, but that's really but, grainy. Like that's a, that really jumps out. Can you, I just imagine watching a whole thing like that. I'd turn that off. Well, it's I, I know the it's highlights just, are even all just, blown even out. Just, the, even just a little bit of grain. It just like when we went to the yeah. black and white, the actual film photography, it felt so clean, so pristine. Yeah. Like I could have just used a tiny hint of it or something, you know, but you pause. I happened to pause on some of the stock and and there were like you, you could see all of the un, unfixed dust and string, like thread elements yeah. uh, on the film that that hadn't been cleaned up. I was one surprised that they didn't clean that up just a little bit better, um, uh, and because that would have also matched better to the modern stock. And uh, to your point, I actually think they did a, a fine job for the the time we spend with the film, with our eyes on the film. I think it would have been visually exhausting to watch the whole film dirtied up so yeah oh i'm sure it would have i'm just i'm just saying uh, but yeah. you're right the color was perfect i mean the color was i think really great i actually um worked with mod hupful uh his very next film the savages really yeah i mean i can't say i did worked you with him, do you dine with mod hupful <laughs> but does one we get were beverages we were with in, in we were in the room together from time to time over the course of our tiny little uh, portion of that project 
Oh, I have the chills. Little hairs are standing up there in the back go. of my, mat, my neck. <laughs> um, uh, costumes were lovely. I, you know, we talk about a period film. Got to talk about the costumes. I actually think they did a great job with the costumes. This is John Dunn uh, behind costumes, and the, you know, I think they went to some lengths to, you know, make sure that they had period costumes, uh, especially the undergarments, the corsets, the heels, all of that stuff. I think was really, um, was really great. Yeah, like they actually. Um, for the the first like big pinup session that she did in kind of her black leather with those boots that go up to her knees, mm-hmm. like they had those custom made for this because they wanted to get them just right. Those I think they call them Betty boots, and uh, they I mean they really wanted to make them look right. And it's just like everything just looked so authentic and real. Like you look at photos of Betty Page and you look at what they were recreating here, and I'm like they really did a great job of capturing all of that. And this yeah, yeah you're right. I mean this is the sort of film that highlights what the costume designer can do for a project and i mean if there's anything that i would say awards recognition wise would have been nice to see a little more of was recognition in the costumes costumes production design absolutely you know i i'm not saying i'm not saying anything of anything but if you were to do a little search of the playboy centerfold betty page picture you would see it recreated in this movie uh, it's the the wink hanging the ornament on the Christmas tree, and I just think that they nailed the production of that scene when she's she's sitting on her knees and she's hanging things. Just how about give us a little wink, wink, snap, perfect, perfect, yeah. perfect, and uh, and that's that's the shot that they had ended up using in the original Playboy. So yeah, one of the very first Playboys, yeah, like she right. was one of the first of the centerfolds. So okay, Mark Suozo behind the music. Mark Suozo is not a, a big documentary composer. That is largely where Mark does his work. Yeah. Um, 23 documentary credits up to this point. His uh, feature film uh, music is much smaller, only 10 credits. Started doing the stuff with Whit Stillman, so always was kind of in the indie scene as far as uh, film composing goes, but and only really did films for about 20 years. Was, his last film was 2011, Damsels in Distress. Um, otherwise, it really is focusing on documentaries. What's funny is uh, I one of the films that I really enjoy, one of his IMDb top four is American Splendor. And I would not have been able to tell you who did the music on that at all. I just it never yeah. really noticed and I don't really remember, but uh, I'm sure it was great. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was fine in this film and nothing nothing stood out as like really great. I, I guess part of me also feels the music felt a little hallmarkish. Yeah, I worry about that. I, I worry that the that I, I think the music, like going back and listening to clips, the music fits so well with a with a non-committal, unopinionated film. Yeah. <laughs> the music yeah. is non-committal and unopinionated. Exactly. Yeah, that's where we're left. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Betty Page, obviously, as as much as she was portrayed here as kind of a boring character, there were, sure were uh, some <laughs> other things, uh, other projects related to Betty Page that, uh, out there. If you're if yeah. you're so curious, if you like this one, or if you don't, you might be curious to go look at some other ones. Yeah, there's definitely some some interesting work out there. I mean, there is a uh, direct to DVD biogra- biography, I guess, a biofilm. Not really a, uh, I mean, it is very much a documentary about her called Betty Page Dark Angel that really focuses on her time with the Claws. And that's, it's kind of that period of her life. 
in 2012, there was a, a film called Betty Page Reveals All. And this was the authorized biographical documentary that I think that she had been committed to back when this film was going because they were they did a lot of interviews with her. She died in 2008. They had done a bunch of different interviews with her, plus a lot of other people in her life. And uh, so those are some uh, biographies to pick out. Other than that, I mean, she she fell out of favor for a very long time. And then in the 80s kind of had this uh, revival um, this rediscovery of her and it kind of turned into this thing where like she really turned into like somebody in pop culture that people would reference and point out. And that's where probably I first heard of her, you know, because like from from different um, types of clothing, uh, you know, I think uh, Christian Dior has has patterned stuff off of styles that she wore. And um, you look at film, this is something I didn't know, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. There's a, a droid called the BD-3000 Luxury Droid that was inspired by Betty Page. Also, Rosario, Rosario Dawson's character in Death Proof, Quentin Tarantino's film, she was designed with that haircut to look like Page. There's uh, comic books like Poison Ivy. There was a point where she was designed to look like her. Uh, different other comics. There was actually some Betty Page comics. Other books uh, had stuff. Orange is the New Black. Uh, video games, music. Even in astronomy, there is a planet that is named for Betty Page. So clearly, there is something about what she was a part of and how she, even unwittingly, however it came out, she ended up representing this element of the period. And I think that's what people gravitate, gravitate to. And to that end, I guess the film does kind of depict like this is this woman who became known as, you know, somebody who is in these images that are iconic now. Wow. Fascinating. I have seen yeah. nothing else of, of Betty Page besides really this film. And like you said in the beginning, being aware of her, you know, learned a lot. I can't say that this movie necessarily inspired me to want to dig in and and watch more Betty Page stuff. No, but, you know, at least I know you've seen Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> That's right. It does make me want to look up that droid. Because, really? <laughs> droid? <laughs> I know. Very uh, funny. How to do an award season. This was a film I think people could feel. It just, I mean, people loved Gretchen Maul. That was the thing that really came out in conversation, how great she was. But the film itself felt so lackluster that it didn't get a lot of notice. Uh, it had no wins, but it did get four nominations at the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. They nominated it for the EDA Special Mention Award for the Best Depiction of Nudity or Sexuality. Lost to the film Little Children. What, pray tell, what are the, what's the rubric for that? I would love to know. I would love to know. But just to give you a perspective, the other nominees were Borat, uh, the first <laughs> Borat film, Babel, and Sherry Baby. Wow. So okay. now you know. All right, Borat. Got it. At the Berlin International Film Festival, it uh, was nominated for Best Feature Film, but lost to The Blossoming of Maximus Oliveros. At the Golden Trailer Awards, it was nominated for Most Original Trailer, but lost to Thank you for smoking. That actually makes me want to go watch both of those trailers now and see. Yeah, the trailers, sure. And last but not least, it was nominated for uh, the Sa a Satellite Award, Gretchen Maul for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, but lost to Helen Mirren in The Queen. 
Well, that you know, like I, I think you said it, it's missing a whole lot of uh, awards around production design and costumes. Uh, that's unfortunate. I think none of I wouldn't complain about any of these other losses. Yeah, I, I mean, even Helen Mirren, I thought, you know, probably gave a better performance in The Queen. I thought yeah, she was pretty right. fantastic in that film. So I'm I'm fine that it had lost these. You know, it's uh, it's not a film I expected to really get a lot of awards. Yeah. All right, how to do with the box office? Well, this was another indie by Marin and another one with no budget online, unfortunately. Other than reading that this film had a low independent size budget, there just aren't figures out there, alas. The film did have a limited release starting April 14th, 2006, opposite Scary Movie 4, The Wild, My Brother's Wife, Preaching to the Choir, and some other limited releases, Kinky Boots and Hard Candy. This film really struggled at the box office. It only earned $1.4 million domestically and $363,000 internationally for a total gross in today's dollars of $2.2 million. Again, I just don't have anything else to go with, but I don't think this likely was much of a success for Mary Heron. Well, maybe next week you'll be you'll be able to perform a little bit better. <laughs> maybe. Fingers crossed. Uh, you know, this was this was a good series. I'm glad we did this series. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about Mary Heron as a filmmaker. Even if I wasn't crazy about this film, uh, I sure enjoyed just watching the trio of films and and looking at the kinds of things she's interested in, the kinds of stories she's interested in telling. Um, uh, but it, to me, my opinion has not changed uh, about American Psycho. It's a it, it it's the the standout so far of the work that she's done. Absolutely. And, I, you know, to that end, though, I will say I haven't seen anything else that she's done after Betty Page. I, I mean, she's done some TV work. That's where she's doing a lot of work these days. She's done two other features at this point, The Moth Diaries in 2011 and Charlie Says in 2018. So she's really spacing them out quite a bit. And, you know, I don't know. After watching this series, I don't know how inclined I am to jump into these two. Yeah, I, I let's just say it, it might be interesting uh, down the road to throw in a bonus, but it, it's I'm not going to hurry up to fill out this series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see all the films we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe up over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to the flickchart database with this film in it, and you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, the notorious Betty Page or Il Postino, the post. Il Postino. Il Postino, please. The notorious Betty Page or Rabid. Rabid. Rabid, please. <laughs> Betty Page was missing a uh, armpit that could attack people. Yes. That's what she needed. The notorious Betty Page or Year of the Dragon. Ah. Uh, I will take Year of the Dragon. I know. I saw you coming. <laughs> um okay you're the dragon the notorious betty page or to the stars by hard ways to the stars by hard ways to the stars by hard ways the notorious betty page or apt pupil interesting talk about controversial themes yeah um my hunch is you're gonna be apt pupil i am yeah me too apt pupil it is the Notorious Betty Page or Underworld Rise of the Lichens. Underworld Rise of the Lichens. Yeah, I'll take Underworld Rise of the Lichens. <laughs> we should say it's all really most of this is coming down to which movie you would rather watch. This is not, exactly. the, you know, right? Uh, yeah. 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 Um, although up to this point, I'd say I still think that 
you know, they're better films. They're better movies. <laughs> <laughs> the Notorious Betty Page or Ocean's Eleven, the 1960 original. I'd watch probably the 1960 original. I would watch Betty Page over that one again. I didn't we're, like that We're at, we're at, I mean, it's, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. <laughs> <laughs> Is is like a game of solitaire an option? Yeah, right. Uh, I'll okay. I'll give it to you. you All right, Betty it. Page, the notorious Betty Page, or the women, the notorious Betty Page. I'll say the women. Oh wow! Yeah, you've it, really you've really come around. There's there's a lot more going on in that film. All right, let's take it to the mat. Let's get to the bottom of the list and then start fighting about it. That's right. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three, three scissors. Crush oh. you. Betty Page takes it. The Notorious I, Betty Page. I was going to say whip, ball <laughs> oh. gag, or stiletto. Yeah, right? <laughs> the Notorious Betty Page or Under the Cherry Moon. I know where this is going. Under the Cherry Moon. Every time it will I be will Under the Cherry Moon. Betty Page. <laughs> Here we go. One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Scissors. Paper. Oh, nuts. Ah. <laughs> I saw where you were going. Betty Page, of course, is only one spot above it. That puts Betty Page in spot 498 on our chart. 498 out of 504. It's, you know, pretty low. It's considered a 1% over over there. Well, we should say at, at FlickChart, uh, on the FlickChart database, only one person has this movie in their top 20. No one has it at number one. So even that one person doesn't have it at number one. Yeah. Uh, and it wins 43% of its matchups. It's, you know, it's not great. Its uh, its global ranking is sixty one twenty five. How'd it do on your personal? It didn't do very well. This was it was a tough film to rank because it, it's just like I, almost even some of the films that I'm like it's not that great a film, but I'd watch it over that one because at least it had interesting like there were interesting things happening in that particular yeah like film. under the cherry moon right, right. <laughs> oh nice try forty three oh seven out of forty six twelve that's a seven percent on my chart. Well, it actually did a little bit better on mine. 11.24 out of 14.97, and that's 25%. Uh, it, according to the algorithm, if I go over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a one-star film. Uh, it's hard to argue with that. I think I could go as high as two stars with the Gretchen Mall bump. Um, but it's not really a movie I'm excited to watch again. I think I feel about as opinionated about the movie as maybe the filmmakers had in making it <laughs> yeah I, uh i don't know what'd you what do you think uh, yeah i i'm pretty disappointed with what they did here it just felt so expected um i gretchen mall absolutely is fantastic i i think i'm going to give it a one and a half no heart and that entire one and a half may be all for gretchen she can take the <laughs> all of that well, is, if this was ever a La Vion Rose film experience for me, like another biopic where the starring performance is exceptional and the rest of the movie is not that. But that film at least is doing something like that film. I'd watch again and, and you know, say, OK, there's there's at least something interesting going on in that film yeah. for me to take away from, you know, um, this film. I just didn't feel it. They were I, I feel like I just can't help but feel like the writers never we're able to pin down what this story should have been. Mm. So it's frustrating. Um, I, I will give it a two star with the Gretchen mall bump. Uh, and I can't even cheat because I apparently never added Le'Veon Rose to my flick chart to see what I gave it. <laughs> I, you know, what are you going to do? 
Uh, but so two stars, no heart, and all of those two stars will be for Gretchen Mall and John Dunn costumes. <laughs> yeah, right. Here, here. Oh, and Mott Huffle, because you were in the room where it happened. And, you know, fun, fun camera work, good color. Uh, Even if right. it was illogical. Where, uh, where, pray tell, do we go from here? We are uh, shifting gears. We're going to be jumping into a new series. We had done Stephen King a while before. Um, we've looked at a number of uh, films that he has uh, his have come from his uh, his works. This particular series, we're very specifically focusing on the ones that Frank Darabont wrote and directed. This is we're calling this King a la Darabont. So we are going to be looking at three films by Frank Darabont based on Stephen King's films. Three of, I should say, Frank Darabont's four films that he's directed. We're looking <laughs> that at leaves the Shawshank... this room for a bonus. Yeah, right. well, it's unfortunately, Stephen King had nothing to do with The Majestic, as far <laughs> as I know. But uh, The Shawshank Redemption from 1994, The Green Mile in 1999, and The Mist in 2007. All right, and we, could you want to tease a little bit about what we're doing with uh, Shawshank? Let's just say we have some surprise guests who will be joining Unprecedented. us. Unprecedented. To talk about that particular film. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to do it. Oh, and the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always do it. Uh, we went high, and there aren't very many, so we're a little less than high. And they're very positive. <laughs> they're very positive. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, you, want, you want to go first? Why don't you go first? I've got a four-star by Sunny Riverside, who just has this to say. Mall glows, but its shifting color seems inexplicable. Oh. I, I, I think Thoughtful. I can agree. Yeah. Mine, uh, Zoe Collette writes with a four star, uh, starts with a quote, a, a quote that nay, may sound familiar. Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden when they sinned. They put clothes on. Uh, this is one of those stories, she continues, where I am so glad a woman directed it. Imagine how putrid this could have been with a man behind the camera. Mary Heron continues to amaze me with her films. I love the use of black and white, but the scenes that are in color really stand out, especially the scene where she's photographed by Bunny Yeager, played by Sarah Paulson. That was the definite highlight for me. Prior to watching this, I always wondered how one could go about portraying Betty Page, but Gretchen Maul truly pulled it off, playing her as innocent and truly deeply religious despite the work that she's in, along with playful, flirty, and sexy. I, there are some things in, in the review that I certainly didn't see on screen, uh, but the one thing that stands out to me, Andy, that I am often struck by when we talk about movies with a particularly, um, uh, I don't want to say necessarily feminist bent, uh, but I'll say that anyway, is that I wonder if I'm missing something because I walk away from this film wishing that it had been more feminist. Uh, and I'm left feeling a little bit empty by that. And I'm sometimes struck by how maybe I'm missing something that surely other people are seeing because I didn't see it. Well, it's funny because because I had a my, I had another review that I was going to read that started with a very similar statement. Imagine how abysmal this would have been with a male director. That was Vivian who wrote that. 
And I was a little, I was like, oh, I'm going to read that. And then I switched, but I'm, I, I'm glad you did that one because yeah, that was something I thought was interesting. You know, the, the and you know, it's been talked about for, for decades now with probably nearly a century now with uh, filmmaking um, being so old. Um, the fact that the, the whole idea of the male gaze and I think that certainly is something to be said. I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if I agree with these people because I just don't feel like, I, I don't know what Mary Heron was bringing to it. That Yeah, that, all that of that, gave it that might be true, but not for this movie. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm oh, thrilled wow. with Mary Heron as a director. Yeah. Um, when she's really pushing, I just didn't feel like there was any of that here. So, yeah. ah, well. All right. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.